Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I'm going to jump right into the cases today. We've got lots of updates per usual. The first one is Brian Koberger claims surviving roommate has evidence that may help clear his name. And I guess there's been some hesitancy on the part of this roommate to testify, and I do not blame her. I wouldn't want to face him in court either, but murderous suspect Brian Koberger's defense team believes one of Kaylee Goncalves, Madison Mogan, and Zana Cronudo's surviving roommates may be the key to clearing his name. Koberger has been accused of fatally stabbing the three University of Idaho students, as well as Kernoodle's boyfriend Ethan Chapin, at an off-campus home in Moscow, Idaho, November 13th. The other two roommates were sleeping during the killings and did not suffer any injuries. Now in court documents, a criminal investigator working for Koberger's counsel claims Bethany Funk who lived with Goncalves, Mogan, and Kernoodle at the time of their deaths, has information material to the charges against Mr. Koberger. Koberger's investigator said that some of the information Funk allegedly has is exculpatory to the defendant, meaning it could help his defense. According to the investigator, Ms. Funk's information is unique to her experience and cannot be provided by another witness, and that it is necessary to subpoena this witness because the witness's testimony is material and necessary to this case. However, an attorney Attorney representing Funk argues in separate filings that the investigators' claims have no merit for the defense to request a subpoena for a preliminary hearing, which has now been set for June 28th. Funk's attorney says there's no further information of detail pertaining to the substance of the testimony, its materiality, or alleged exculpatory information of Ms. Funk or why it would be entertained at a preliminary hearing. The motion also says there's no authority to summon a Nevada witness to appear in the Idaho hearing. A preliminary hearing is not meant to become a mini-trial due to its limited purpose in deciding probable cause, according to Funk's lawyer. There's also no reason to present at the 28th of June preliminary hearing. Koberger, who was arrested in December and charged with four counts of murder and one of felony burglary, has yet to enter a plea. Authorities took him into custody after DNA found on the bottom snap of a knife sheath near Goncalves and Mogan's bodies allegedly matched with DNA samples taken from the trash of his parents' home. The affidavit says the other surviving roommates are only identified as D.M., this person told investigators she saw a male figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose on the night of the murders. The figure was described as taller than 5'10 with bushy eyebrows. This roommate stood frozen in shock before locking herself in her room. Koberger's public defender, where the criminology student was arrested, previously said his client believes he'll be exonerated. He said this is not him. He believes he's going to be exonerated. That's what he believes and those were his words. Wow. I'm not sure why they would subpoena this poor young woman, but I wouldn't want to testify either. And we'll keep you guys posted on that as it continues to unfold. If you want to hear more details about that story, which goodness knows it's been all over the news. We covered that case on our January 8th episode. So if you want to hear more details on that one, go check that episode out. In the meantime, though, we've got Elizabeth Holmes again with another update on her case as well. She is trying to avoid getting back into, uh, she's trying to avoid reporting to jail, which, you know, I don't blame her. I probably would too, but she was supposed to report for prison at the end of April. Elizabeth Holmes will not report to prison today after all, after being convicted of wire fraud for her dealings with her failed blood startup, Elizabeth Holmes has white knuckled herself to freedom for just a little bit longer. A last minute legal filing this last week has delayed her 11 year prison sentence, which was expected to begin on April 27th. 
According to CNBC, Holmes' legal team appealed to the U.S. Ninth Circuit of Appeals in San Francisco, claiming the U.S. District Judge Edward Davila's sentencing of the former CEO was riddled with errors, which, not surprising, right? Holmes' team further argued that she should remain free while she appeals the conviction that the federal government now has 10 days to respond to the appeal. Davila sentenced Holmes to over 11 years in prison in November 2022, and the disgraced CEO was scheduled to begin her sentence April 27th. Ninth Circuit rules state if the appellant is on bail at the time of the motion being filed, the bail will remain in effect until the court rules on the motion. Holmes is currently on bail, meaning that her prison report date has been indefinitely delayed until the court rules on the current appeal. Earlier this month, Holmes and her counsel tried to push her prison reporting date while she appealed her sentencing. However, according to court documents filed at that time, Davila denied Holmes's motion for release pending appeal. Holmes argued in her appeal that the products she promoted through the failed biotech startup were not faulty, while the court argues that this does not address why Holmes was convicted, which is for several counts of wire fraud. After a lengthy legal battle, Holmes was eventually found guilty on four counts of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. I guess Sonny Balwani, her partner in all of this, has already reported to prison for his sentence. And then another update. This case continues to unfold with more and more bizarre stuff, and that is the Lori Vallow case. The trials are happening right now, but I guess jurors heard Chad Daybell's chilling 911 calls for his ex-spouse. This article was written by Pilar Melendez, and a month after prosecutors say doomsday author Chad Daybell colluded with his paramour to kill her two children, he called 911 about another death. This one was a little closer to home. I'm Chad the husband. She's clearly dead, Daybell is heard saying October 19th, 2019 to the Fremont County Sheriff's Office dispatcher. She's frozen, he said. The startling 911 call played in the court on Friday of this last week began when one of Daybell's sons called in a panic after he found his mother, Tammy Daybell, stiff. Daybell, a former gravedigger turned popular apocalyptic novelist for the Mormon audience, suddenly took the phone to declare his wife of nearly 30 years was deceased. He began to cry as he gave dispatchers his Idaho address. When officers arrived at the home, Daybell was distraught and crying as he led deputies to his bedroom, where he said he had moved Tammy on the bed. Officers on the scene said Daybell told them that his wife had woken up coughing the night before and she eventually fell off the bed. The officer told jurors that Daybell had made a point to stress that Tammy hated to see doctors, obviously covering his tracks. Just two weeks later, after Tammy was pronounced dead of natural causes and laid to rest in a quick funeral, Daybell jetted off to Hawaii to marry Lori Ballow. Prosecutors allege that Tammy's death was now deemed as a homicide after an autopsy later concluded that she had been fatally strangled. Which is interesting because she was ruled to have died of natural causes, but now when they exhumed the body, they found that she had been strangled. An autopsy had not been conducted the first time around, but they were able to exhume the body and conclude that she had been strangled. This was just one of the three murders that the religiously fanatical couple committed in 2019. Authorities say that in September 2019, Ballow's children, seven-year-old Joshua Ballow and 16-year-old Tylee Ryan, were murdered and buried in Daybell's backyard. A month later, the couple allegedly murdered Tammy for an insurance and social security payout before they fled to get married. Fallow, who is now standing trial first, has pleaded not guilty. She faces a maximum sentence of life in prison while Daybell faces the death penalty in his trial later this year. So far, Vallow's trial has focused on the grisly deaths of her children. Experts say one was fatally strangled with a duct-taped plastic bag while the other was dismembered and buried after her death. 
but on Friday, prosecutors pivoted their case to the third victim, Tammy Daybell. Prosecutors say that Vallow and Chad Daybell met in 2018 at a religious conference and began a months-long affair centered around their extremist beliefs. Jurors previously heard testimony about how Vallow's former husband, Charles, found out about the affair and had emailed Tammy to inform her. Wow, these are all bombshells that I didn't know when I initially recorded the first episode about this case. But Charles was fatally shot in 2019 by Vallow's brother, Alex Cox. And then a few months later, Cox died of a blood clot. Vallow also faces separate charges in connection with Charles Vallow's death. But Tammy's sister, Samantha, took the stand on Thursday and Friday to discuss Chad and Lori's relationship leading up to Tammy's slaying. She began to cry as she explained Daybell's weird behavior and noted that her sister seemed very awkward in the summer of 2019. Something seemed off and they were very awkward at her house and Chad wouldn't converse with my husband like they normally did, she said. It seemed really strange and we didn't know what was going on. Two weeks before Tammy was murdered, her sister said she spoke with Tammy, who seemed very healthy, but just before she died, Tammy called her sister to let her know that she'd just evaded injury. Evidently, on October 9th, 2019, police say Tammy called 911 to report that someone shot at her with a paintball gun. And we did cover off on that in the episode. But in the 911 call played in court, Tammy said that a man in a ski mask shot at her twice as she was unloading groceries from her car. I pulled up into our driveway and was getting stuff out of the back seat of my car. He had a paintball gun like he was going to shoot me, Tammy asserted, saying in the call. I kept asking what he was doing and I yelled for my husband. He took off then behind my house. The man in the driveway didn't say anything. He was holding the gun like he had a rifle and was shooting at me, but nothing came out of the gun, so I didn't think it was loaded, she added. Just days later, Tammy's son called dispatchers for help after he found his mom on the ground frozen. Or she's stiff. I don't know, he added, before Chad Daybell took the phone. After Tammy's death, her sister reported that Daybell wanted to have a quick funeral that some family members could not even attend. Daybell also did not want an autopsy, for obvious reasons, right? Despite the concerns about foam coming out of Tammy's mouth at the time of her death. About a month later, Tammy's sister learned that Daybell had remarried, this time to Vallow in Hawaii. You don't get married four weeks after you just buried your wife of almost 30 years. You just don't do that, she said. She added that she was devastated by the news and even confronted Daybell about the decision when he realized Vallow held children after finding Charles Vallow's obituary online. Tammy's sister said Daybell told her Vallow had a hard life but denied he was going to be raising her children. She said Daybell responded, there's no children and they're going to be empty nesters. Wow, right? Just wow. We are going to jump over to the main case for the day, and we're going to talk about Courtney Clenny slash Taylor. Courtney Clenny was born April 23rd, 1999. She was born in Midland, Texas. Her upbringing is not super clear from the resources available, but she started getting exposure on social media as Courtney Taylor. She first began her social media popularity from workout videos, and she gained quite a following until she decided to start an OnlyFans account. Now, OnlyFans, for those of you who might not be aware of the platform, is some sort of platform where various individuals can post content, mainly videos or pictures of themselves, and the site actually gained a lot of exposure during COVID-19 when lockdowns shut down sex work on many other forums. The platform has historically been most popular for sex workers, although there are non-sex workers on that platform. And I want to make that clear. It's just not only sex workers. 
But this platform is very popular, in particular with sex workers, because people can monetize content. It's kind of a subscription-based service where for a monthly fee, you can see a particular user's content. So Courtney, under the name Courtney Taylor, was able to make money off Instagram and OnlyFans, supposedly in the six figures range. She was also dating a man at that time by the name of Christian Ambaselli. He was two years older than her and went by the name Toby, according to friends and family. At the time of this horrific incident, Toby and Courtney had been dating on and off for roughly two years. News media had stated that Ambaselli was a crypto trader, but it isn't really obvious what he did for work, although he seemed to have plenty of money. Ambaselli grew up in Plano, Texas and attended Texas Tech University, living at first in Dallas, then Austin with Courtney. The couple relocated to Miami together in the early part of 2022, which Courtney chronicles in her still working Instagram page. And I did go look at that Instagram page. There are no current or recent postings, but you can see up until the point of when this incident happened that she had been posting very steadily until then. Courtney and Ambaselli got a high-rise condo in the Edgewater part of the city. The area is very affluent, it's on the waterfront, and it's populated with lots of young, wealthy professionals. Friends, neighbors, and family say that the relationship between Courtney and Toby was very tumultuous. It was punctuated by constant bouts of domestic violence, and the two were constantly fighting, yelling, and throwing things at one another. Courtney had been arrested on January in 2021 for domestic battery while the two were in Vegas. The charges ended up being dropped eventually because Christian slash Toby refused to cooperate. Then, in March of 2022, Courtney and her boyfriend got into an altercation and she kicked him out of their condo. They eventually made up and then police were called for another domestic violence incident with the couple. It is reported that the condo that they lived in was taking steps to evict them at the time of this incident, despite only having been there for a few weeks. Okay, so let's fast forward to April 3rd, 2022. Christian left the condo to run errands and get food. Courtney stayed home. At about 4.32, Christian slash Toby returned home using his electronic key fob. And there's some reports that he had gone to get them something to eat, you know, run errands and grab some sandwiches on the way back. But shortly thereafter, the couple started fighting yet again, and nearby residents began calling about the disturbances coming from Courtney and Christian's apartment. The building security called police around 4.45 in the afternoon, and about 10 minutes later, a call came in to 911 from Courtney claiming that Christian slash Toby had been stabbed. In the meantime, Ambaselli can be heard in the background saying that he is dying in the 911 call, and Courtney is heard apologizing. EMTs arrived shortly thereafter to find Courtney. She was covered in Christian's blood and cradling his body. Horrifically, the neighbors were said to have taken pictures of the scene through windows. Can you imagine? Christian was stabbed in the chest area and police found two large pools of blood, which they believed indicated that Christian had been bleeding for a significant amount of time. Perhaps she even waited to call the police. Evidently, Courtney had used a six-inch blade to stab her boyfriend, penetrating at least three inches into his body and piercing a crucial artery that provided blood to his upper body, head, and neck. Unfortunately, Christian was pronounced dead a little while after he arrived at the hospital, and from the start, 
Courtney said she was the one who had stabbed her boyfriend, but she told police she'd thrown a knife at him from a distance of 10 feet away to defend herself against what she called his violent actions toward her. However, it was blatantly obvious to anyone at the scene that it was stabbing from a close distance, not as Courtney claims, with her throwing a knife. The autopsy also came back detailing a forceful downward thrust causing Christian's death. At this point, the death was ruled a homicide, and he had died between 4.33 and 4.57 p.m. Courtney then changed her story again and claimed she'd stabbed her boyfriend when he tried to choke her. During the short period of approximately 24 minutes, Courtney had called her mother twice, which was very perplexing to onlookers. One of these calls was a six-minute call, and one was seven minutes. Both calls were made prior to her call to 911. And although it is possible she stabbed Christian after the calls, this would be an incredibly tight timeline. There were also texts from Courtney's mother advising self-defense and don't speak to anyone without a lawyer. Police took Courtney into custody right away. But here you go. You've got Courtney, this 5'5", petite white female, and you've got Christian, who's over six feet tall, and he's a black man that is very muscular. She was detained under the Baker Act because police believed her to be at risk for suicide or mental health crisis, and they did this presumably as a protection. The hold was involuntary, and emergency mental health services were called in. Courtney was eventually freed after she was detained, but Christian's family immediately doubted Courtney's story of self-defense. They claimed that Courtney had always been the aggressor and the abusive one in the relationship, and that Christian was mild-mannered and had no violent tendencies, and that Courtney had murdered Christian in cold blood. They claimed further that Courtney got special treatment because she was a white female. They don't think it was fair that she hadn't been arrested right away and that there was no suspicion of her by most people involved. They also suggested that Courtney showed no remorse. At the same time, a video surfaced a few days later showing Courtney at a hotel bar getting drinks with her father. The video does not show a ton of detail, but it does show Courtney being harassed, basically as people confronted her in this bar. Courtney was not arrested until four months after Christian's death, which is just absolutely horrific, and his family is understandably very upset about that. Supposedly, Courtney had checked herself into a rehab program in Hawaii for substance abuse treatment and PTSD. August 10th, 2022, Courtney was arrested in Hawaii for second-degree murder for the fatal stabbing of Christian Amaselli. She waived extradition proceedings and returned to Florida to face murder charges right away. A press conference was conducted shortly thereafter, and police laid out the charges. Christian was a victim of domestic violence, and they also showed surveillance footage of an elevator incident between Courtney and Christian several weeks before Christian's death. And you can actually go online and look at that elevator scene for yourself and decide what you think in that. But in the video, Courtney is said to be aggressively attacking her boyfriend. This video went viral with both parties exchanging blows, but Courtney started it and continued to hit her boyfriend throughout the video. The prosecution used this video as proof that despite the size difference between Courtney and her boyfriend, Courtney was clearly the aggressor in the relationship. The video could be used by either side, but it could get kicked out of evidence as being too prejudicial, or it could remain in evidence as a pattern of violent behavior on Courtney's part. 
The defense wants to caution that the video does not show events leading up to the stabbing and that Ambaselli was the abuser. And they are claiming abuse, manipulation, and sex trafficking on the part of the victim. In order to show this, the defense will need to show clear evidence as well as financial records indicating Christian received some sort of financial benefit from this trafficking. Courtney filed a written plea of not guilty August 27, 2022. The arraignment was on August 31st, and her plea was confirmed at that time, and her attorney then filed a motion for discovery to be sealed. The video was undoubtedly prejudicial, he claimed, and they also wanted to make sure that the videos and pictures on her phone would not be provided either because they thought that this would also be prejudicial or that she would be judged unfairly because of her involvement in sex work. Courtney was denied bond or bail because the judge claimed he didn't know enough about the case to grant her one. By September 6, 2022, Courtney appeared at the evidentiary hearing, claiming she wanted to protect the adult content, obviously that content from her phone. She claimed that the evidence on her phone would prevent her from getting a fair and impartial trial. But she was basically asking for her phone contents to be confidential, and this was denied. Courtney is currently in custody awaiting her trial, and her team claims that they have various photos of bruising on Courtney showing abuse by Christian. But Christian's family wants justice, and they believe Courtney murdered their son. So what's at stake here? Courtney could be sentenced to 25 years to life if she is found guilty, and there's a lot of evidence behind the scenes here. Courtney did have a pretrial hearing in early February, which had originally been scheduled for December, but the trial was obviously delayed for a number of reasons. And interestingly enough, she's also being sued by Christian's family in civil court, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. But the high-rise apartment building is also being sued, as well as the security company that provided security to the condo. Christian's family is seeking about $50,000 for pain and suffering, future loss, medical care, and funeral expenses. Supposedly, the couple's tempestuous relationship was very well documented, and Courtney was the clear aggressor in what can only be described as obvious domestic violence, they say. Her next court appearance is scheduled for May 9th. Clenny earned about $900,000 on OnlyFans in 2020 and more than $1.8 million in 2021. This case is really interesting because of the dynamics involved here and because of the potential for judgment on many levels because of race and the alleged perpetrator's involvement in sex work. We're going to have to wait and see on this one if she gets a fair trial or if this turns into a complete circus. And we're going to continue to provide updates on this one as they occur, obviously as this case unfolds. But we do have this one update that just came in. A OnlyFans model who's accused of murdering her boyfriend is being sued by his family. A Miami OnlyFans model and Instagram influencer who's accused of killing her boyfriend inside their luxury apartment is being sued by his family for wrongful death. Courtney Clenny, 26, also goes by Courtney Taylor, was charged with second-degree murder last year after police said she stabbed her crypto-trading boyfriend, Christian Ambaselli, 28, to death in April of 2022. Now, the reason they're saying second-degree murder is because she is claiming self-defense in this instance. But Ambaselli's father is suing her and accusing her of negligence, according to the lawsuit. The lawsuit, which was recently filed, also named, like I said, the high-rise building owner, the property management company, and the security company. He is accusing them of failing to maintain the subject premises in a safe and danger-free manner. Criminals can carry out physical assault within subject building without fear of being caught, discovered, or prosecuted, the lawsuit read. An atmosphere was created at the subject premises that facilitated the commission of crimes against persons. 
Ambaselli's father is now seeking about $50,000 to cover pain and suffering, future loss of support, etc., medical care, and then funeral expenses as well. She is in jail as she waits for the trial related to the murder charges, but she is steadfastly claiming that she acted in self-defense. At the time she was arrested, prosecutors said Ambaselli had been a victim of domestic violence and played elevator security footage, obviously. We talked about that earlier. But again, Courtney is claiming that Ambaselli was actually the abuser and they have evidence to prove likewise. The attorney who was representing Ambaselli's estate in a civil suit told news that Clenny was the aggressor. Usually we think of a domestic violence in the reverse situation. And this is a case where you can see in every police call, all the neighbors, all the tenants that we've talked to, that the police have talked to, said that the aggressor was the woman. He added that the building staff and security were made aware of the alleged abuse leading up to Ambasili's death, but did nothing about it. Police were called at least eight times in response to disturbances involving the two. Clinty should have been evicted before the situation got out of control, he added, but saying that she was a danger not only to her boyfriend, but also to the other tenants living in the building. If she had a gun of some sort, she might not only shoot him, but other people. So they had a duty here. They violated that duty. They failed every security standard known to man. When you have a problematic tenant over multiple times, you've got to do something about it, and they failed to do it. Clenny's next court appearance is scheduled for May 9th, as I mentioned earlier. It's interesting because this negligence lawsuit really does have some grounds. There are numerous and multiple reports from many sources that there had been police called to the scene numerous times and that the building had also been notified that there was violence and screaming and shouting and going on in a constant basis. So they did have some duty to take some action, but we'll see whether the court determines that that is indeed the case. And we will continue to keep everyone posted on this case as it unfolds, obviously. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. We do have Instagram as well. We post on at BFD podcast. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stories. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye.